0: So I know you guys heard it. I heard that pretty loud amen from the back, back there. Praise God that we have somewhere to stand. We stand on God's Word. And that's why we come to this portion of our service, which is instruction from God's Word. Uh, We are worshiping God from the beginning of this service till the end, and we worship now through preaching and through the hearing of preaching. So this is not uh, an interlude to kind of sit back, get, get comfortable, and wait till the next active singing. We actively listen to preaching, and in doing that, we worship. And so we come now to God's Word to worship Him through instruction, remembering, as that song of preparation there reminds us, that we have this firm place to stand. We are graced people this morning as we come and sit under the Word of God, recognizing that God has given us the firmest foundation. Let me get you to go in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. We've been working our way through this most famous of biblical books, uh, you could say, or most famous Uh, at least of Paul's letters, of the Apostle Paul, and today we come to the end of the first major section. We come to the end of chapter 4, but not just the end of a chapter, we come to the end of the first major chunk of the book of Romans. Romans. And as I approach this series on Romans, especially considering how long we were in Genesis, and people were asking me as we started out, how long are we going to be in Romans? How long are we going to be in Romans? I have no idea. But what I do know is in my own mind, I think about it in terms of little series within a larger series. And so this first series, I I suppose we could say, is coming to an end today as we come to the end of this first major chunk. And this first major chunk has a major Theme, and it is justification by faith. In other words, we are declared right with God by faith alone. There's a video series put out um, by uh, I forget the company who puts it out, but Joel Beaky. I've mentioned him before. Maybe you know of him. He uh, is behind it. It's on the Puritans, and it's a pretty extensive study. Of the Puritans, and in the little preview, and I would encourage you, uh, media gratia, I think is uh, is where you, how you would find that. But it's a little four minute intro to it online, and you go and watch it. And one of the uh, as they're going through, they're interviewing all of these all of these folks, and one of them interviewed is Ligon Duncan, and he makes a comment about. The greatest need for human beings or the greatest question that we face as human beings, the greatest problem we face, I forget the exact words he uses, but he says is, are we right with God? And that's the issue of these four chapters, are we right with God? That's the big question that we are meant to ask ourselves as we go through. And so it is understandable that this section of Romans is quite challenging because we are as it were underneath the microscope of this gospel which challenges us to ask are you right with the living god and we are made right with him paul says emphatically by faith alone not by anything we do. We can't earn it. You can't leave with a a set of resolutions by which you will be made right with this God, but you simply trust him. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, this theme has come to us in three major parts. So this is my way of summarizing what we've done. And I I like to do it this way because it's most helpful to summarize it on the back end. Because it's after going through all of the details that you're able to then look back and say, okay, how do we understand what we've covered so far? What are the various parts? You can do that on the front end, but it's limited. When you've gone through it extensively, you can then do it, I think, with more accuracy at the end. And so... I would, su- I would suggest that the three major parts we've covered are these. The need, the gift, and the picture. So if you want to write those down, just to help you kind of summarize what we've covered so far. The need, the gift, and the picture. These are not the sermon points for today. This is just my way of recapping what we have covered up to this point. So let me quickly uh, say what I mean by each of these. So first, the need. The beginning of Romans... Chapter 1, verse 18. Now, I'm talking about after the greeting, the greeting material, and the um, comments about Paul's concern for the Roman Christians. From 118 all the way to 320, we get this extensive declaration that we are all those of great need. And here's the problem we are all under sin. And because we are all under sin, we are all under condemnation. And the word all is key because Paul will, in he'll repeatedly make the point that all human beings, without exception, are in this condition and have this need. And that goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 20 the great need because of our unrighteousness. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's the great statement of that entire chunk, 118 to 320. So that's the first way of summarizing. Second, the second part is the gift. God gives the gift of righteous status to those who trust in Jesus Christ. It really can be summarized in that way. It's a gift. It's a status, and it comes through Christ. This is not by works, but by faith alone. And this, too, is without exception. And this is what Paul is driving home from chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. The gift. So the need, the gift, and then finally, up to this point, the picture. Father Abraham serves as the great illustration of what Paul has been teaching, namely justification by faith. Abraham serves as the picture, the quintessential picture, of the truth that Paul has been explaining. Justification by faith, apart from works, apart from the law, and once again, without exception. Abraham serves as the illustration for all peoples. And that's why you repeatedly, you've noticed as we've gone through these first four chapters Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile, repeatedly throughout. The need, the gift, and the picture without exception. And that picture of Abraham as the great illustration takes us all the way up to chapter 4, verse 22. Today, we come to what could be regarded as the fourth section of chapters 1 to 4. And it is a tiny section. And I'm being a bit bold here in saying that this is a section, verses 23 to 25. But in some respects, it is a fourth and final section to this larger section. But it is tiny. Only three verses long. The last three verses Of chapter four. Here, Paul gives the application of the illustration. So, all throughout chapter four, Paul has been illustrating his doctrine. He has established his doctrine, he has explicated it. And then he illustrates it throughout chapter 4 in the life of Abraham. Both the fact that Abraham was justified by faith alone and the nature or quality of Abraham's faith itself. And now in the last three verses of this chapter, he applies the illustration. He takes the illustration and he moves from that to his Christian readers. So the title for the sermon this morning is Abraham Applied. And if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We will read all the way from verse 13. I'm tempted to read the whole chapter, but I won't do that to you. So we'll, although it would be wonderful, it's God's Word. But we're going to go from verse 13 All the way to the end of the chapter. But our focus for today will be verses 23 to 25. So this is the word of God. It is profitable for God's people. It is perfect. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. And authoritative over us. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring. That he would be heir of the world. Did not come through the law. But through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace. And be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. All believers, that is. Verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And here's a description of Abraham's faith, which we've already started there. Verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered The barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And in verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And then here's our passage for today. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You can go ahead and be seated. As I said uh, last week, It really made no sense to me to go do something else for Advent than what we are doing right here. Christ and the gospel concerning Christ is just so explicit and emphatic. And so we are seeing here why Christ came into the world. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask for his blessing, ask that he would attune our hearts to him, that he would uh, cause us to not be distracted, to sweep away those concerns of this life, remember the word going out in the parable of the sower, and you have those thorns coming up. They're the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches, and they choke out the word. Or remember the bird that flies down on the path, the seed put on the path, and the bird comes down, and the seed doesn 't even have time to take root because the bird just Grabs it up. So let's pray that none of that happens among us today, but that the word falls on fertile soil. Father, we thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you that you have sustained and created your church by means of your word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You will tell us in this very epistle. God, we thank you that you save sinners like us, the ungodly, those who are your enemies, those described in Ephesians 2 who are dead in trespasses and sins, who follow the course of this world, who follow the prince of darkness, who are children of wrath. God, we thank you that you have transferred us from darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. That as Christians, we gather today in celebration of your great salvation. We thank you, Father, that we're here together to fellowship among each other, to be with Christians, to hear Christ proclaimed even in common conversations and, and to see the faces of our fellow saints, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And to hear your word, to sing your word, to pray your word, to see your word demonstrated through the Lord's Supper. God, we are so thankful that you have in your graciousness towards us, you've brought us here today. We pray that this would not be a time in vain, but that it would truly be fruitful. Lord, we know that unless your spirit blesses this time, that it will not prove fruitful. And so, God, we ask that you would cause faith to grow in our hearts, that you would save any among us today who is unconverted, that you would grow our affections for Christ and for one another. Lord, we pray that our hope in the life to come would become so much greater than the trials that we currently face. We pray, Father, that as Paul tells the Colossians, that we would set our minds on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, knowing that when Christ appears, we will appear with him. Father, help us trust in these heavenly realities. Help us store up treasure for ourselves in heaven, not on earth. We pray, God, that you would go with us now in the name of Christ. Amen. So as Paul applies the illustration of Abraham to his Christian readers in Rome and to all Christian readers since then, to Christian readers gathered here this morning, he pushes us to consider three things. As he applies the illustration, he pushes us to consider these three things. You'll see them up here on the screen. First, our story Second, our faith. And third, our Savior. That's what we're going to spend our time looking at this morning. So let's go first to our story. Look with me at verse 23 and the beginning of verse 24. Verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe. So let's just stop there and see what the Lord has for us just in this one verse with a little bit from the second. Paul is going back to Genesis 15, verse 6, which he quoted at the beginning of the chapter. You'll remember as chapter 4 opened in verse 3, Paul quoted from Genesis fifteen six. He said this, For what does the Scripture say? So in some ways, Romans chapter 4 could be understood as a kind of rabbinical explanation of the Old Testament Scripture there in Genesis 15. Remember, Paul is coming out of his rabbinical training. He was uh, one who studied under Gamaliel, who was a, a renowned rabbi of that time. And Paul is... Going back to Genesis 15, 6 to explicate, to expound the Old Testament as he moves through Romans chapter 4. It is as though Romans 4 is a commentary on Genesis 15, 6 and surrounding passages. But he says there in verse 3 as he begins the chapter, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this being counted righteous is where Paul began his discussion of Abraham. And it is also where he ended his discussion last week as we came to verses 21 to 22. Speaking of Abraham's faith, he says that he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And then he ends in verse 22 by saying this, That is why his faith Was counted to him as righteousness. So, as you enter into chapter 4, and anytime you study the Bible, you're looking for repeated words. And this word counted to or credited to is all over the place in Romans chapter 4. He begins there in verse 3 and he ends there in verse 22. Well, that's great, you might say. Now we know how God saved Abraham. Great. And what Abraham's faith looked like. We've learned a thing or two about this Old Testament character. But what does this have to do with me? I mean, we've been looking at this guy named Abraham who lived 4,000 years ago from our vantage point and And 2,000 years before Paul. So imagine, as Paul is writing to these Roman Christians, the, the amount of space between Paul and his readers and Abraham is the same amount of space between us and Christ. This is ancient history, even to Paul. So what does this have to do with me is a question they maybe were asking, and we most certainly, 4,000 years later, are asking? And the answer is, it has everything to do with you. The simple answer, Abraham and what we've read about Abraham in this chapter has everything to do with you. If you are a Christian here this morning, the way God saved Abraham is the way God saved you. Isn't that amazing? The way God saved Abraham, as we read in the Old Testament, as we read Genesis, Paul is telling us that the way God saved that ancient man is the same way he saved you, Christian. If you are not a Christian, the way God saved Abraham is the only way you can be saved. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, and and you're like, okay, we're talking about some, is this a history lesson? We're talking about some 4,000-year-old guy. And what I'm telling you is, as we look at that 4,000-year-old guy, we are being told how it is we're saved. How we come to be rescued from hell. How we come to be freed of our sin. How we come to inherit eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth, in the presence of the I Am. It has everything to do with you. In other words, Abraham is really just an example of what God has done and is doing and will do in the life of every Christian. Whether you are already a Christian or you will be a Christian, Abraham is an example of what God does in your life and has done in your life. As Charles Hodge says, Abraham is a representative person. He represents the believer. And that's why I've called him repeatedly the quintessential believer. Let me say it to you this way. Just as the truth of justification by faith intersected with Abraham's story, we see that story from Genesis 12 onwards, just as this truth intersected with his story, so too does it intersect with your story. Paul's big idea here is that what God did for Abraham 4,000 years ago, he also does for us when we believe, counted to him as righteousness, credited to him as righteousness, so too does God credit our faith to us as righteousness in 2020, this very strange year. Even now, 4,000 years later, we are saved in this way. It will be counted to us who believe, Paul says here this is how we as Christians today are to read the stories of Abraham in Genesis, and for that matter, any Old Testament story. Now it is true if you look on you go into uh, i don't even, they don't really even have these anymore, but if you in the old days, you go into a Christian bookstore and you see Uh, All of the t-shirts with these verses from the Old Testament taken out of context. I could name a few, but I don't want to kill anyone's sacred cow here publicly. (laughs) Or, you know, verses on your coffee mug or whatever else. These Old Testament verses just very quickly appropriated and applied to me today. That happens. There is certainly an irresponsible way to go to the Old Testament, yank a verse or a paragraph out of context, and just slap it on yourself. Sure. And yet, at the same time, there is a reason why Christians go to the Old Testament, and they feel so inclined to hug these passages of promises and assurances, sometimes taking them out of context. But there's a reason why we feel this inclination to do that. And it is because the Old Testament was written for us now. Let me give you a few examples. In Romans itself, chapter 15, verse 4, Paul says this. This is incredible. For whatever was written in former days, fill in the blank. For whatever was written in former days, was written for our instruction that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Written for us, for our endurance this week that the Old Testament Scriptures were written in order that you might endure this week in Noonan, Georgia in 2020 in order that you might hope in God right now in the midst of whatever you're experiencing, those Old Testament texts, those stories, those characters are to be applied to us now and in the day when Paul wrote this to the Roman Christians. Let me give you another one, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So just take a breath. You should be struck. You should be breathless after that. The end of the ages has come upon us, those after Christ. And those words from the Old Testament were written down for our instruction. Meaning that the very purpose for which they were written in the way they were written was for us today as believers. So we take Abraham. Paul is saying, look, apply quickly. Take hold of this for yourself. The way God saved Abraham is the way God saved you or can." save you, or will save you. Second Timothy three, sixteen. all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now we read that. That's an important passage of Scripture for the authority of Scripture. We go there in order to demonstrate the inspiration of Scripture, but there's something else it tells us. When Paul wrote that to Timothy, the scriptures were the Old Testament. There, were no, there, was, there, were, there was not a New Testament when Paul wrote that. He's talking about the Old Testament books. He's talking about books like Genesis and stories like that of Abraham. And what he says is that these scriptures are for... Our teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So so here's what I want to say to you this morning as we move away from the illustration of Abraham. Let the story of Abraham, let his justification, let his faith profit us. May it teach, reprove, correct, and train us. That's what it's meant to do. That's what God has been doing over the last several weeks in the life of our church and in our families and in our gospel community groups and in our own hearts is he has been taking those sacred writings from the Old Testament. He's been taking those stories of Abraham and he has been correcting us, reproving us and training us by means of them, growing our faith, showing us where we're wavering and calling us. To trust in him. May it do these things as we consider our own justification by faith. So that's the first thing Paul wants us to look at. It's just our story. And how it is part of this story of Abraham. And how Abraham's story really is an example of our story. So now we come to our faith. The second point, our faith. So we recognize so far that our faith is counted to us as righteousness, just as Abraham's faith was. But what are we believing in? Now, I've said this a lot lately because we're talking a lot about faith. We've been told we're justified by faith and not by works. Faith, faith, faith. And so we constantly need to ask ourselves, what are we having faith in? What is the object of our faith? What is the content of our faith? Well, look at verse 24. We know, let me say this, we know what Abraham believed. We're told. Go back to Genesis 15. Here's what we believe. Verse 24. It will be counted to us. So here, here are the people who are going to heaven right here. Who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Those who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Last week we began, as we talked about Abraham's faith, we began with Abraham's hopeless condition. Remember, he's old. He's old His wife Sarah is old and his wife Sarah is barren. This is a hopeless condition from a human standpoint. And yet God comes to him and promises him that many descendants and even many nations will come from him. And go so far as to promise him, not only will you have many descendants, many nations, but all the families of the earth, some random guy in Mesopotamia. All the families of the earth, Abraham, will be blessed through your offspring as Jesus says in John 8, 56. And I love this because we, we're reading the Old Testament and we're, sometimes we're asking, what's going on in Abraham's head? What is he seeing? What is he thinking? Well, it is mind-boggling to hear the words of Jesus as he reflects on the content of Abraham's faith. He goes as far as to say this, John eight fifty six, Your father Abraham, he's talking to Abraham. The Jewish leaders, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. That's amazing. He saw it and was glad. Abraham looked down as he heard the promises of God. He looked down into the future and he saw Christ. He saw the day of Christ, the coming of Christ. Abraham believed that he would have offspring as God promised, and that his future offspring would bring salvation to the world. Now, it was not revealed to him how this was going to happen, and it wasn't revealed to Abraham when this was going to take place, but as Jesus makes clear, Abraham nonetheless believed that the deliverer the Redeemer would one day come from him. And I think this is one of the reasons why, one of the indicators that we are to take Genesis 3.15 as a massive statement in early human history. God says to the serpent that the descendant of the woman will crush his head. And and commentators come along throughout Christian history and say, look, this is the promise of the Redeemer, the promise of the Deliverer of the Christ. Others come along and say, well, you're reading way too much into that. But here's the thing. Abraham believes that there is going to be a future Deliverer, a future Redeemer who's going to come. And that's precisely what Jesus says. He saw my day a specific offspring, and you see the singularity of it as you go through Genesis. There's one offspring, yes, there's many, but there's one who will possess the gates of his enemies. Abraham knew that the promise made to his forefathers, the promise made to Adam and Eve, and that went down through to Noah, and that went down through from Noah to Terah, To Abraham himself, even though Abraham's family had been lost in idol worship, he knew when God came to him that there was a deliverer, there was a redeemer coming. And he saw Christ's day, and he rejoiced. He was glad. And as we read last week, Abraham hoped in all of this despite his hopeless state. Remember, all of this hopeful language, all of these grand promises come to Abraham in the middle of this absolute desert state. He received God's promise. And as verse 18 says, in hope he believed against hope. The reason that Paul writes that is because from a human perspective, there was nothing to hope in for Abraham. Nothing at all but he put his trust in God that God could do and would do because he's powerful and because he's faithful that God was going to do all of these things, period. Regardless of what his circumstances had to say. In hope, he believed against hope. And I want you to think about how this corresponds with us. This dawned on me this week. I had not noticed this really before, but in some ways, Paul, in the early chapters of Romans, has presented to us, spiritually speaking, a condition that is like Abraham's condition physically. And here's what I mean. In chapter 1, verse 18 to 320, Paul intends to put us in the same hopeless place as Abraham. Think about that. Abraham is hopeless with regard to the promises. Why? Because he can't have children. And all the promises are about children. We look around. The beginning of Romans. And all we see is a lack of righteousness. And yet the promises of God concern righteousness. All we see in the opening chapters of Romans is wrath, judgment, and condemnation, yet the promises of God are eternal life and inheritance. Just as Abraham's situation was hopeless, so too is ours in light of Romans one eighteen to 3.20. And the gospel comes crashing into this. The gospel of God's gracious promise bringing hope, right in the middle of that hopeless situation. Do you see how our spiritual situation is related to Abraham's physical situation? And what this gospel of promise calls us to do is to believe, to believe that it is true. To believe that it is true for us. I've said this before, the gospel must be appropriated it cannot merely be Jesus Christ died for sin or Jesus Christ died for sinners. It must be Jesus Christ died for my sin, my sin. And look your sin in the face. That sin, that very specific sin, that mound of sin that is my life, Christ died For that on the cross, to believe that it is true for me, to believe that it overturns this hopeless situation. That's exactly what Abraham did. He looked around and he saw absolutely no arrows pointing towards what he was promised. And when we look around and we see our sin, we see the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We look around, we see that. There's no hope. And the gospel comes to us. The promise of eternal life through Christ. So, as we saw last week, Abraham trusted in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Remember last week, what is Abraham's faith in? It is in the God who gives life and who brings into existence things that were not. Likewise, we looking back to Christ put our faith in the God who raised him Jesus from the dead. Do you see that? That's amazing. The connection. From deadness to life through the promise and power of God. That was the object of Abraham's faith and that's the object of ours. Just like Abraham We are putting our trust in God with respect to Christ. People ask, how were Old Testament people saved? That's very simple. That's easy. Christ, period. They were saved through Christ. They looked forward to Christ. Jesus is explicit there about Abraham. But Abraham looked forward to Christ as the promised deliverer. And in order to do that, he had to trust that God would give him an offspring to begin with. Isaac. Because there's no Christ without Isaac. We look back to the already raised Christ, the one who brings life out of deadness, the one who calls into existence things that were not. To believe like Abraham, to be saved like Abraham is to put our trust in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. We trust God. We believe in God. How? I was talking with someone recently about this. How? What is it to believe in God? How do we do that? By trusting in the risen Lord Jesus. Because here's the thing. If he's risen, he's Lord that's the message at the very beginning of Romans, as Paul introduces concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, he goes on to say, "His resurrection from the dead, he's been declared to be Lord of all. So to believe in the resurrect, to believe in God, to say, "I believe in God, but to not trust in the resurrection, and to not trust in Jesus as my Lord." To not do that is to not be a Christian. This is not vague belief. It is belief in the God who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. It is to look to a king. A king who has been enthroned. A king who is over us and yet who died and rose again for us. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 this is a verse, if you've grown up in church, you grew up in church, this is a verse I had memorized very early on, being in church since I was three years old. Romans ten nine. if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There you go. Notice, resurrection and lordship of Christ, woven together, You cannot trust in him as Savior who rose without trusting in him as Lord. I was listening to a sermon this week by a well-known pastor. And he was making the case, essentially, that you can trust Jesus as Savior and not trust him as Lord. And I was listening carefully to his argument and he substantiated that claim by appealing to his own experience at 12 years old. That's not going to cut it. A claim like that has to be supported and substantiated by the Word of God. We trust Him as Savior while simultaneously submitting to Him as Lord. And that is the reason why it's called the obedience of faith. We trust in a king. We trust in a king who was our ransom. If you're not a Christian... This is where your eyes need to settle. On the resurrection of Christ from the dead. I say that because that's where Paul settles in verse 24. What is it we believe as Christians? Maybe you're here and you're thinking this whole Christianity thing, I don't know. I don't know about it. What is it? What what am I doing? What, What am I committing to? What am I signing up for? It really is none of that. I mean, there is obviously... The notion of commitment as we submit to Christ as Lord. But at the heart of it all is to look to this resurrected Christ. That's the heart of the Christian gospel. That's the heart of Christianity. Those who die, and as I heard sung at my grandmother's funeral just last week, fly away. Fly away, oh glory fly away. When I die, hallelujah by and by, I'll fly away. Those who fly away are those who've trusted in a risen Christ. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He wants to unpack this a little further. Who is this risen Lord? Who is this one whom God raised? Who is this one through whom we are saved. And that brings us to verse 25. So look there with me as we come to our final point, our Savior. We've seen our story, our faith, and now our Savior unpacked, our faith unpacked a little more. Look at verse 25. Jesus, our Lord, is how he ends verse 25, and then here's how he explains him. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification? So let me just say it this way. What does the Christian trust in? What does the Christian believe in? Well, the God who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Period. That's the Christian gospel. Deal with that. Let that be your obstacle to faith in God. Not the Christian you know who you think is a hypocrite, or all the rules that you think you're going to have to follow if you become a Christian, or whatever else. Stand or fall based on this gospel. Put your trust in this gospel. That is what We have here is gospel in a nutshell. This is what we must believe to be Christians. And notice that the focus is on the Father and the Son. I love this. The verbs have to do with Christ, but they are passive. They're passive. He was delivered up. And he was raised. By whom we need to ask, by whom was he delivered up? By whom was he raised? By the Father is the answer. As I think about the Father delivering up his son to death for us. Let's just, let's just stop there for a moment. My mind goes back to Genesis chapter 22. Where Abraham is told to sacrifice his son to death. Isaac. A troubling story. Far more, as I said when we were preaching through, uh, going through Genesis and I came to that passage, uh, that becomes far more troubling, became far more troubling to me when I became a dad. My first child was a son. So I read that and I think, whoa! like Inconceivable! Inconceivable! And to think that Abraham... Not only loved his son like all of us do, but he waited for him for so long. And all the promises God gave him were tied to this one son. It's an amazing story. Genesis 22, as God commands Abraham to go and sacrifice his son. And yet we are are meant to read in that story a pointer, a type. To God the Father sacrificing his son. Why did Abraham not have to sacrifice his son? Why are both Abraham and Isaac not in hell? Because God sacrificed his son. Now think about this for a moment. This is what it is like. You read the story as it stands and you're blown away. But then listen to this. What if God would have told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac To save Lot. Even more, listen, what if God would have told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in order to save the wicked Sodomites? Inconceivable, already inconceivable, to tell him to sacrifice him at all, to sacrifice him for his nephew Lot. Even more. And to sacrifice him for the wicked sodomites. How inconceivable. Listen. Listen. People of God. That is exactly what God did for us. That's what we read in Romans 5 verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us when we were sodomites. Christ died for us when we were ungodly wretches, depraved, rebels against God and His glory on our way to hell. God didn't send Christ for fairly good people who just needed to be made perfect. God sent Christ to die for wicked sinners like us. It's an amazing gospel. This is the depth of the Father's love for us. This is the God in whom we trust. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God who delivered up his son. The God who, as Isaiah 53, 6 says, laid on his son the iniquity of us all. He took our sin And he mounted it up on Christ. And Christ suffered and died for it. We are told here in verse 25 that when we trust in the God who raised Christ from the dead, we are believing two fundamental things about Christ, about our Savior. And this is where we'll finish this morning. So don't miss this. We are told two fundamental things about our Savior at the end of this passage. First, That he was, as we just talked about, delivered up for our trespasses. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. These trespasses bring death and condemnation. We just covered that a few weeks ago. What is the result of trespasses? Overstepping God's law. Defying God's law. Rebelling against God. Death. Condemnation. Christ took the penalty for them upon himself in order to remove death and condemnation. Here's the thing. If you're not a Christian, death and condemnation stand over you. You don't, you don't necessarily feel it. You don't necess- Although you do in ways in your mortality... And also in the sin, indwelling sin. And just in God's providential wrath that he brings in life. But during the good days, so to speak, you don't feel it. But you are. The Bible tells you that right now, if you're not a Christian, you are under death and condemnation. Whether you see it, sense it, feel it or not, it's there. And what the gospel does, what God does in Christ, is he just, praise God, he just takes that off. And he puts in its place right-standing. He puts in its place pardoned, innocent, righteous. Righteousness is given to us from Christ. Condemnation given to Christ from us. So that's first. Delivered up for our trespasses. Second, Christ was raised for our justification. Now, we've been talking a lot about Justification over the last several weeks, it means, as I've said, to be declared right with God. And we know that our justification comes through Christ's death. When we think of justification, we think of Christ's death on our behalf. And that's exactly what we've encountered in Romans 3, 24 to 25. We are justified by his grace as a gift, listen, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so how are we justified, declared right with God? By the cross, by Jesus' death on the cross, by the atonement. And yet here, Paul strangely puts our justification in relation to the resurrection. That it is the resurrection, catch this, the resurrection... That gives us justification. Well, it's not an either or. It is a both and. So what I'm going to do this morning is end with a couple of really rich quotes. Now, these are rich and they're dense. So you got to strap in and listen to these quotes. Two quotes that are incredibly rich to help explain what Paul has in mind here in relating resurrection and justification. So you gotta, You got to tighten up and strap in. These are rich, but I think they will be edifying. So I take the risk of quoting them to hope that they will edify you. So here we go. John Murray and Charles Hodge explain how resurrection and justification go together. John Murray, five considerations. Number one, we are justified by faith, and this faith must be directed to Jesus. But only as the living Lord can he be the object of faith. Number two, it is in union with Christ that we are justified. Only as active through resurrection can any virtue Proceed from Christ to us, and only with a living Christ can union have efficacy. Three, the righteousness of Christ by which we are justified has its abiding embodiment in Christ. It can never be thought of in abstraction from him as a reservoir of merit stored up. Only as the living one, resurrection, can Christ be the embodiment of righteousness and be made to us righteousness from God. Four, the death and resurrection of Christ are inseparable. Hence, even the death or blood of Christ as related to our justification could have no efficacy to that end in isolation from the resurrection. And then number five, it is through the mediation of Christ That we come to stand in the grace of justification. But the mediation of Christ could not be operative if he were still under the power of death. So, pretty deep, but so rich. I hope that you took a big bite out of that. Or at least can go and listen to it later. Let me give you another one. I think of these as two little chocolate brownies. Another one here. From Charles Hodge. A little shorter, but equally profound. It was necessary not only that our great high priest should suffer in the outer court, but that he should pass into heaven to present his righteousness before God for our justification. I love that imagery. Righteous Christ standing before the Father, raised in glory. Both, therefore, as the evidence of the acceptance of his satisfaction on our behalf and as a necessary step to secure the application of the merits of his sacrifice, the resurrection of Christ was absolutely essential, even for our justification. All of that packed into this idea of a raised Christ in whom we trust. So this year, as we celebrate Advent and Christmas, may we consider that the baby in the manger whom we adore is the one whom God delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It is through believing in the God who raised him from the dead that like Abraham, we too are justified by faith. By trusting in him, we trust in God, the God of Abraham, the God who saved Abraham, the God who saves us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to reflect on the life of Abraham. As we by your providence, have the backdrop of Genesis there in our recent memory. Walking alongside of Abraham through his weaknesses and through his trust in you. And now God, we get this commentary from Paul on Abraham, which begins to fill out for us the fact that that, those texts, those stories were all for us too. And they tell us how we're saved. They tell us how we'll inherit the kingdom of God. Lord, we thank you for saving us. You are so gracious to put upon your very own one and only unique son, our sin. Apart from him, Lord, we have nothing. And we praise you that through Christ, we have everything. We are heirs of the world. As Paul says, about Abraham and his offspring. We thank you for this time in your word. We pray that you would go with us now in the remainder of this service. And Father, as we come now to participate in the Lord's Supper, we want to give you thanks. We want to praise you for the body and blood of Christ given for us. Just as Jesus says in John 6, that he is the true bread from heaven. That we must eat his body and drink his blood spiritually. We must trust in his atonement, that is, if we are to be saved. And God, we thank you for this picture of that truth as we come to the Lord's Supper. We pray that you by your spirit would help us to examine ourselves, that we would renew our faith in Christ. And Lord, that you would Use this to bind our hearts closer to one another. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.